1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: Welcome to Episode 382 with my guest, uh, singer-songwriter Chris Smither. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Metal Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction— to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. That's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. This uh, show is part interview, part listener confessions via the surveys that you can take online at our website, mentalpod.com. It's completely anonymous. We don't even track the IP address of... uh, the person taking uh, filling out the survey um, yeah go to our website there's all kinds of stuff there there's a forum you can join um, you can read blogs guest blogs you can support the show uh, you can see the archive of past episodes that goes all the way back to uh, 2011 when uh, when we started uh, I want to kick things off with a an email that I got from a listener named Grace. And she just um, she just sent in a couple of loves that she has. And um, she writes, I love getting something in the mail that I forgot I ordered. I love that one. I love that feeling. But there's also a part of it where you're like, oh, is this where I'm going downhill and I don't know it and I'm just putting a spin on it? Uh, She writes, I love the way it feels to be rocked and held in the tall branches of a tree when you've climbed above the world on a windy day. That's a beautiful one. Um, And then her last one, she writes, I love telling someone that thing that you can't tell anyone. That is such a great one because that one is so at least to me, has been so important in becoming mentally healthy is, you know, there's a saying in a lot of recovery programs that you're only as sick as your secrets, but the key is finding the person who you're comfortable sharing that with. And, um, and then I thought of a couple while I was reading this, um, and for some reason they all have to do with grass, but I love that, um, when you're high enough in a plane, not high, like fucked up, but high enough uh, in a plane and you're looking down at the landscape and the grass looks like a perfect green carpet and i love imagining laying on that grass in the in the sun and i can almost like, feel that grass on on my back when i when i imagine that and then i imagine building a house like in a rolling hill where the where the grass is really green and then I imagine myself feeling isolated and then becoming lonely and then drinking and then dying alone. This next one, um <laughs> I love the feeling of walking barefoot on a golf course, either the fairway or green especially, but oh, it's amazing. And then this is a weird one, but it's from childhood, but I love the smell of grass clippings in a lawnmower combined with that little bit of a smell of gasoline from the lawnmower. There was a neighbor uh, growing up that their garage, I used to love the smell of their garage because it was the perfect blend of that. And I think there was other stuff in their garage too that added to the scent, but whenever they would open their garage door, I would rush in there because I just loved that. I loved that smell. And, uh, and then the older kid that lived there in that, in that house uh, molested me. Moving on. Uh, we were talking about um, we were talking about vulnerability in one of my support groups, and I was just thinking about the relationship between putting up walls and the nature of addictions and loneliness. And before I got sober and relatively mentally stable, I never understood that drinking or any type of addiction that i have engaging it is a a way of me putting up a wall i used to think this is my way of being able to function in the world i didn't see that it was cutting me off from human connection which was the very thing that i needed to heal and become emotionally healthy in addition to a lot of other things but um when that wall is up and you don't have human connections, you can't help but feel lonely. I I dare you to find someone who is stuck in an addiction that doesn't feel lonely. That was one, sadness and loneliness were the two prevailing emotions I felt all the time before I learned how to let my walls down. And once I learned how to let my walls down around healthy people, I realized, oh, sometimes walls need to go up, but just around certain people. And that's what boundaries became for me, is a way of protecting myself as opposed to engaging in an addiction, which is just having one gigantic wall up all the time. And then nobody gets in and we wonder, why do I feel lonely? this is an awful moment uh filled out by a guy who calls himself it all started with elaine i'm not sure what that is a reference to but um he writes uh, i performed a two hour and 25 minute search last night for the perfect porn clip just to enjoy a nine second orgasm isn't that the nature of uh pornography uh you know hunting for the clip um yeah, and so weird. Nine second orgasm. That's very specific. Did he start a clock as he as he uh, as he began orgasming? Um, I've got to imagine uh, it was with the free hand. Maybe, maybe he's got a foot timer, or maybe it's one of those Olympic timers with the sensor. And so, as, <laughs> as soon as the ejaculate comes out. The clock starts, it senses it, and then it knows the orgasm is over when the sensor hears him say, I'm so lost. Or maybe it's like a, a, in tennis, it's a guy up high in a chair, and, uh, and he, or like in a race, and he just waves a checkered flag when the orgasm's over. Or maybe you just count it when you close your browser. That is, is there really anything more consistently shameful than that feeling of closing your browser after you just had an orgasm looking at porn? Uh, This is an email that I got from uh, a guy, he's an an Irishman, um, and he wants to be called the trout of no crack which apparently is an inside joke uh, that uh, he says other Irish folks will get. Um, And I know crack is, uh, actually crack is in uh, Gaelic, I believe is spelled C-R-A-I-C. Anyway, he writes, "Uh, Paul, glad to hear you're making it over to Ireland. The comment you made during the opening of the podcast with Melissa Broder uh, that Northern Ireland, Ireland is technically not Ireland, made me cringe a little in my defense when i said that what i meant was from the perspective of somebody who would be traveling to northern ireland and that they would be going through the english government at customs stuff like that i personally believe that northern ireland belongs to the republic of ireland and that it's currently being occupied by the british government and that it was taken by force um and it's been hundreds of years of oppression of the underclass by the uh, by the elite anyway um As you know, the island is divided into the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. Fun fact, the Republic of Ireland has a constitutional claim to Northern Ireland, and in most cases, the Irish government recognizes people born in Northern Ireland as Irish citizens. Uh, if you were to say, and that I did not know, if you were to say Northern Ireland is techt- technically not Ireland and a nationalist community in Northern Ireland, you would likely get a nasty glare or a verbal lashing or worse. Identity politics is a very touchy subject over there. And while your accent will allow you to play the dumb yank tourist card, it's still wise to use care when discussing such things. Um I'm actually what I have an appointment with Jerry Adams, so that i can I can say this. Uh, my family is from Belfast, and I'm an Irish citizen an Irish citizen. I go back every few years to see family. Northern Ireland is a beautiful place, but very backward. Uh, I think you'll find it's a lot like the American South. Political discussions of topics that really matter are typically drowned out by hysterical arguments over abortion, flags, and, quote, heritage. Mental health care is more accessible now, and the quality is better than it used to be, but it's still lacking, considering the collective trauma the place experienced during the troubles um, that still persist today. And... um I really look forward to to getting up there and um, and interviewing people. I've been fascinated about uh, the trouble since I was a kid in in grade school. um, I went to a predominantly Irish Catholic, uh, American Irish Catholic uh, grade school, and we were always... Informed of what was going on uh, in the seventies with the hunger strikes and Bobby Sands, and um, and it's always just kind of captured my my imagination, and um, and I think there's a part of uh, Irish Americans that wants to belong to a culture whose identity is the one of being wrongly oppressed because, not, not for sympathy's sake, but because, I don't know, there's a certain banner of scrappiness in people that have endured um, oppression. This is, and thank you for that, uh, my friend. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself chicken should not be on pizza. I can't disagree with that. And um, our our second awfulsome moment involving uh, pornography, he writes, I blew off lunch with my cousin two hours ago. So that i could stay home and watch porn that's not the worst of it i got so worked up while watching and masturbating that i pictured screwing my former co-worker she died seven months ago from complications from surgery and this wasn't the first time i fantasized about her since her death what is wrong with me first of all dude do not shame yourself you didn't hurt anybody um And she abandoned you. That's right. She did not fight hard enough. And this is on her. But take comfort in knowing that her ghost is watching you wank it. How tired, how tired must ghosts be of watching people jerk off? You know, the first week you're a ghost, it's probably fun. But after like a hundred years, you got to be like, Oh, oh Christ, I'm turning in. I can't watch this guy go at it again. Can you imagine old-timey ghosts having to watch people jerk off? Oh, my God. Oh, he's going to the outhouse. This could go either way. You know people. You needed privacy. Oh, can you imagine? And the outhouse jerking off on horseback. You know there are people that have broken their limbs trying to jerk off on horseback. And then you're shaming yourself as you get up, with bone poking out. Oh, yeah, you couldn't make it to camp. You couldn't make it to camp. Thank you for sharing that. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself... Um, actually, before I read that, I want to uh, remind you guys about our sponsor, uh, BetterHelp.com. I use them. I love them. Uh, it's an online uh, counseling I going to say online counseling uh, service product, um, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, uh, complete a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. You need to be over 18 and you can communicate with your therapist through email, live text, chat, phone, video, whatever works for you. And often, um, multiple times a week if you if you need to uh for the same price as a lot of places would charge you to just do it once a week um it really depends on the on the therapist but my th- therapist is donna she fucking rocks i love i love working with her and uh, she helps me tremendously so betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from uh, this here podcast and um before i read this uh awful moment and we go into the interview uh with chris smither uh, just to set it up uh the song that he plays to start things off is uh, a song called train home and we talk about it later in the in the podcast so that's why i decided to move it to the front so you could get a sense of what his music uh is like and there's the the, the sound. Um, the, we got some windscreen popping uh, on some of the audio. You guys probably won't even notice it, but it, it it bothered me a little bit. I just want to let you know, I am in the process of reorganizing the recording setup. So hopefully um, we won't have that happening again too much. Anyway. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a mentally ill social worker, and she writes, Last spring, during a particularly bad night, I called a local crisis line. After telling the woman on the other end how seriously I was considering ending my life, she told me either I had to call 911 or she would. And she did call. They sent an ambulance, a fire truck, and two cop cars to my apartment. Even though i was barely functional i was mortified after being loaded into the ambulance the emt asked me the standard questions she then shared with me that she had struggled with her mental health and had been hospitalized too she told me that it gets better and unclipped a wristband she had had on her backpack and she handed it to me it said it's okay not to be okay have hope her kindness made the situation more bearable i still have that wristband I put it on my dresser where I see it every day. It reminds me that there are kind people in this world and that yes, it does get better. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me.
1: Ha, <laughs> ha,
3: Gotta look inside. Got nothing left to hide. Take me as I am, not what I wanna be. Why we'll never know. We passed that long ago. Is and was is all we ever gonna be? He's almost shade down by the river. Feels a breath that makes him shiver. Takes a breath and makes the dive alone. But the dead don't get no vacation Down in that subway station The only break they take is to the bone Waiting on a train to take them home Just waiting on a train to take them home I don't think I see anything for me in visions of the past or the ever after Now it's what can be, all the rest is wait and see Those prophets never hear that cosmic laughter But gypsies in their wagons rolling Never hear those death bells tolling They never take no notice of the tone. Yeah, but I do, and my pulse beats quicker Scornful laughs and knowing snickers Stop my heart and sink it like a stone And I'm waiting on a train to take me home I'm waiting on a train, yeah, to take me home The stuff of dreams Nothing is as clear as this confusion That somewhat welcome news Is there is no way to lose Cause what isn't real is genuine illusion But it's all about their great out dancing Some sit still, some still prancing Some get between them in the zone Where there's nothing left to give them cover But they can't even see each other They just step and stumble on their own Waiting on a train to take them home Yeah they waiting on a train I'm waiting on a train We all waiting on that train To take us home
2: I'm here with Chris Smither, who is a singer-songwriter. <clears throat> I became aware of you a, a, a couple of years ago and um, was like, who is this guy? This is like, I don't know quite how to describe the effect you had on me when I first heard your music. But it was like, this is the music that I never knew I had in my head until I heard it. And... um First of all, I appreciate you taking time out of your touring schedule to to come by and record. Oh, you have no special. idea who I am. You're taking a leap of faith, and I and I appreciate it. Um, you began in 1966 in the that's uh, right. In is that when you were in the coffee houses in Boston, or was that in New Orleans?
0: No, that was coffee houses in Boston. I started <clears throat> doing this. Um, well, actually, you know, I started getting into playing, you know folk music, or whatever you want to call it, when I was about nine years old. You know, I, I found a ukulele in the attic. You know. And you had your parents' record collection. Yeah, and I, and I had an uncle that taught me three chords, and I was off and running. You know, was, uh,
2: what was it about the guitar and the music that you were drawn to as a kid you think that spoke to you?
0: I just thought you know I was just drawn to it. I, I can remember, you know, when I was a little kid, and I, growing up in New Orleans, and I, my mother and I, my mother would take us shopping. I had a sister as well, and, and we would go down to Oak Street, which was like an uptown sort of shopping street, and go to Woolworth and a couple of other stores and things like that. And outside of Woolworth, there was an always always an old blind man. Playing the guitar, and it it just entranced me. I mean, I imagine he was playing some kind of blues stuff, you know. But um, I, I always wanted to stop and listen to him. And my mother never would let me. She, oh come on, Chris, drag me away, you know. <laughs> it just always drew me, you know, the sound of the instrument. And um, I think when I was eight, um, I took piano lessons. We had a piano and. Uh, it just never stuck you know but guitar you couldn't keep me away from it
2: and you discovered uh lightning hopkins right. and that had a big effect on you but
0: well the- yeah that was, that was much later i think i was 17 at that mm-hmm. time and and um i had a roommate in, in uh, college that, that turned me on to lightning hopkins and that was pure blues, but I didn't think of it as blues at all. I just kept sitting there listening to it, and I said, how many people are playing here? And, and he said, only one. And I, that was a whole other style of playing I didn't knew nothing about. I, I, just an, a magnificent storyteller, mm-hmm. and, but it had this driving rhythm behind it. Because to tell you the truth, when I first heard it, I didn't think, oh, this is blues. I thought, this is one-man rock and roll yeah this is this is (laughs) i don't have to get a band you know i can do this all by myself were his guitar
2: parts difficult to learn
0: oh as a kid yeah they were now you listen to them now with 50 years of of work and a little more sophistication and they sound um they still sound great but you know they're simple you know they're really sort of sort of simple but extremely well executed and you know, as with anything you know it's the execution that counts not the inherent difficulty of the exactly piece. uh
2: what was <clears throat> your parents were uh professors mm-hmm. and uh
0: were they both teaching at Tulane no my mother worked at Tulane she was she was an administrator in the art school and but my my dad was a language guy and uh he did, uh, he spent like the second half of his career developing language laboratory teaching techniques and programs. Um, but he also taught Latin American literature, and, and uh, he was a big Spanish and Portuguese guy, but he spoke about four languages. What are
2: some vignettes from your childhood you, that you think are kind of emblematic of your emotional life or kind of the emotional temperature? of your house or your view of the world, your view of yourself in it to just give us a sense of your childhood or adolescence.
0: You know, there was a psychiatrist that asked me that very same question. <laughs> 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 You I'm know, a
2: professional jackass. I don't know if
0: that
3: there's no, a degree guy, for that. You
0: no, know, it was a very interesting, uh, and he was trying to get at that same sort of thing. He said to me, "He says, uh, so tell me about you know growing up and what that was like, and what were your parents like, and did they have expectations for you and aspirations for you?" And I said, "Well, nothing really specific. Um, I just grew up, you know, with." a very certain knowledge that all my parents really wanted was for me to be happy. And this guy looks at me and he says, isn't that a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was—I must have looked a little nonplussed, you know. So he continued. He said, well, he says, you know, everybody, nobody gets through life without periods when they're totally miserable, when things are just totally wretched. And uh, in your case... Not only do you have to endure the misery, but you have to endure the realization that you're disappointing your parents. <laughs> you're letting them down. So, um, you know, I, it's one of those um, questions about emotional upbringing. I just, I was a happy kid. I really was. And and I thought, really, that the vast majority of people... Um, Grew up more or less the way that I did, you know. I had, I had both parents. There was never a doubt in my mind that they loved me, and that they had my best interest in mind. In mind, I mean, they may have chosen to, um, certain. What's the word I'm looking for? They may have executed those passions less than ideally, but there was never any doubt as to what the intention was and um so um it left me really with nobody but myself to blame for <laughs> any screw ups <laughs> later on in, in the in my career um, but uh, you know they, they, there was something in what that psychiatrist said because um I know that in my twenties in my early twenties i was I never wanted to go home. I didn't want to go home until I had something to show. And uh, it was getting, it seemed like there was a whole period where it was just getting further and further away. I was getting sick, drinking all the time, you know, and eventually that kind of paralyzed me. But, and it wasn't until I got out of that that I, I really got back to. The point where I could deliver to my parents the kind of reward that that I, I kind of felt like they wanted, you know, and then and then we had a very good relationship. But it's it's always baffled me how you have to be like at least forty years old before any of that stuff happens. You know, I have a daughter now. I didn't become a parent until I was. 60 years old and i i kept (laughs) i keep telling my friends i have to live to be 100 because (laughs) you know your kids have to be 40 before they can forgive you uh
2: what in your mind when you were in that period where you thought i gotta have have something to 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 come home with what were you imagining that looked
0: like Oh, just some sort of success you know financial
2: uh, recognition critical
0: yes well just something that i was proud of you know um had you recorded uh i had made a couple of records i mean my my first record and and my second record i was quite happy to go home and show those off you know but um you know, getting a recording deal is like getting a lottery ticket. you know you haven't won yet <laughs> you know you've just been given a chance to win <laughs> and' it's, um and I didn't know that. nobody ever knows that it's a funny business and um, the one thing that I held on to a lot was that i after I left home, I never asked for any money I, you know I never asked my folks for any money. I always managed to get by but I wanted to, you know, have the, I wanted to look as though I were going somewhere, I guess, you know, that nothing was static, everything was moving, things were progressing. Gotcha. And um, you'll work hard to maintain that illusion Mm. if you have to.
2: I'm going to assume that your parents had a work ethic that... Uh, oh, yeah. 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 W- were you intimidated by their work ethic? Did it- I
0: wasn't very intimidated by it. Um, my father was somebody that um, I had to live up to. He was admired by all of his colleagues. It was apparent to me. It was, it was totally visible and on display that people thought very highly of him. And I had to get there, too. Yeah. Somehow. So
2: let's talk about that then. Um, Give me some vignettes of you starting out in the coffee houses in Boston. Bonnie Raitt, uh, who has recorded uh, your material, um, was a contemporary of of yours. Uh, Paint a picture of the the scene in the mid-60s.
0: Oh, it was heaven. It really was. In the very beginning, it was just heaven. I, I, got, I left New Orleans and went to Boston totally on the say-so of Eric Von Schmidt, who was a seminal figure in that sort of folk blues revival in the Northeast. And nowadays, almost nobody knows his name, but um, he influenced everybody. And, and I had met him in Florida. He used to spend his winters down in Sarasota. And um, I just called him up. I was with a friend of mine in Sarasota and I I called him up and uh, said I wanted to meet him and he said, well, come on over. I went over and his house was full of musicians. Almost the entire Jim Queskin jug band was down there and hanging out on his beach. And and I sat around and played music. I I was starstruck, you know, and, and... and he said, "Tell me again where you're from. Where are you living?" I said, "New Orleans." And he said, "You know, nobody's going to pay any attention to you there. You got to get up. You should come up to New York, you know, and and Boston, and the Cambridge scene." And um, to me, that was like the word of God. I'd been told what my mission was, and so I dropped my business and I did that. And and when I got there, <clears throat> I didn't immediately. Be, you know, it wasn't like an overnight success, but I never had to get a job. I I immediately got work, you know, playing in these all these coffee houses. That it is was amazing. In 1966, and you know, you would make $15, $20 a night. But in 66, that was a lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah, that would go a long ways. And uh, I just, you know, I was hanging out with other people who were trying to do the same thing that I was and, and we would sit around and jam endlessly and talk about songwriting and listen to Dylan's newest record or Tim Hardin or you know whoever was you know it was just it was the most rewarding period I'd ever experienced up to then because up until that point I had been doing only what people told me I should do which which was go to school Get a degree, get a job. <laughs> you know, everything um, that you can. And here I was being paid to do what I would grab every spare moment in order to do at home. And I, and I was, I was just in heaven. And my uh, imagination was running wild. I was writing songs as fast as I could. And Learning a lot. I learned more, I think, in the first year about guitar playing and songwriting than I had learned in all the years before. Are there any
2: things that you learned that you could share with us? Moments where you were like, aha, here's a a new doorway. Well, I think for a a lot lot of us, songwriting is like, how...
0: How do you construct a song? It, yeah, that's, that's a hard thing to learn. And, of course, every songwriter will tell you something different. The one thing that, er, that all of them will agree on is that there's an essential mystery to it that they can't really explain. They can recognize it, and they develop techniques for, for tapping into it or letting it tap into them but it's a very difficult thing to explain however one of the most important things to learn is that you don't start writing a song with an idea of oh i think i'll write a song about that you just start writing a song and the song itself will tell you what it's about you just um it's an organic process you get it up it's like rolling a wheel down a hill you know <laughs> all your efforts are concentrated on just trying to keep it upright. Where it winds up is beyond you. You have no way of steering it. it. You know, at least not until much later in in the process. I can't tell you how many songs I've written. I had no idea what they were about until they were half finished. Really? Yeah.
2: Is is there a specific example you can? For instance, <coughs> uh, the, the song "Train Home." That was the right. first song of yours that I heard, and there was a. Um, a quality to it that um, really spoke to me because it it, it um, there was a melancholy to it um, but uh, a realness to it that I had an understated uh, element to it that that really spoke to me well. And that's my interpretation. Yeah, which exactly. Could be completely-
0: and that was what that was what I was gonna address is that your interpretation is perfectly valid. Yes. You know, the song does not belong to me after I put it out there. Yeah. You know, it's it means what it means to you. All I ask is that it have a meaning. That's what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've said this, but um if someone asks me, What's this song about? I'll tell them when I wrote the song I did my very best to tell you what it's about. And if you tell me, if you ask me to explain it you're telling me I failed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the you know that's a, that's a principle that it took me a long time to learn is that the artist is under no obligation to explain himself. Yeah. Um, the The art is the explanation. And it's up to whoever perceives it to understand the explanation. Now, if they don't understand it, that's fine. It means that it didn't touch them. you know. And if it does touch them, they're the ones that build the construct mm-hmm. whereby it becomes meaningful to them, where it relates to their own life and their own emotions and so forth and I can't tell you again how many times somebody has come up to me and said man I know exactly what that song is about and they will lay out a whole scenario that is consistent with the song right. it works and I'll tell them you're absolutely right <laughs> even though it might have been the furthest thing from my mind you right. know, I, I never thought of that and, and that is the joy of art you know it yeah. means if it means something to you it's up to you to determine mm-hmm. what that is there's a line in uh, "Train Home":
2: uh, "The only break is to the bone," which is <laughs> <Yeah>. such <clears throat> a heavy <laughs> phrase and brilliant. Yeah. Um, it, I don't. I guess I
0: should. I I shouldn't ask you to. No, you can to, specifics like that are fine. Okay. You know, you know, you want to know what was running through my mind? Yes. At the time, I think when I wrote the song. I you know I came up with the tagline first you know waiting for a train, you know, that concept you know train where you know is there anything going on, and at the time although this hasn't my own interpretation of it changes you know mm-hmm. over time and that's that song is at least fifteen years old I can't you know remember exactly when I wrote it but um, I was contemplating a sort of Mid, mid-ground between life and death, you know, a transitional space that people, ex- or once people, exist in and trying to find out where what happens next or if anything happens mm-hmm. next, you know. When do the lights finally go out or is there another light someplace? And, and so that, that lends the sort of, the, that's the air of confusion about it you know, but it's totally consuming. I'm glad you asked about that line because I was particularly pleased with it <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> You know, it, at the time because it's all consuming, you know. They're waiting for a train, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. The waiting is hard work and the only break they take is to the bone. Yeah.
2: Talk about um, the evolution of the genre of music that you play, uh, people have called you a blues revivalist. Paint a picture for them of the arc of blues coming into the consciousness of your generation. You were born in 44.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, starting with the, the reemergence, I suppose, of the, of the folk scene.
0: It was, you know, the the original reemergence of the folk scene had a lot more to do with a, a British tradition um, that um, of balladeering and um, what would you call it? Maybe a troubadour of some sort, and that is reflected a great deal in mountain music, country, or what was called country then, and what people in those days called hillbilly music. Mm-hmm. And um, but it all comes out of um, a, a lot of it comes out of the um, an Anglo tradition or um, British Isles kind of thing, um, but it was influenced heavily by black music, music that originates in Africa is probably the heaviest single influence in American pop music, always, to this day. Um, The rhythms and uh, rhyme schemes and so forth are just integral to it. You can't get away from it. And what happened in the folk revival that sort of began in the late 50s and continued heavily in the 60s was, it went in approximately the same way. It started with the British tradition and then the blues guys got in. You know, people who were listening to country blues wanted to um, get into the act and, and space was grudgingly made for them as a table at first. Mm-hmm. And then it became sort of apparent that if there was going to be any kind of a crossover or commercial prospect to this music, it was the blues guys that were going to win because it sounds like rock and roll, mm-hmm. and that's where rock and roll came from. Rock and roll sped came from... sped up blues. <laughs> well, it's not even sped up necessarily, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, you know, you, you've got this form that will drive your ideas home like a jackhammer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it, it's it's inescapable. Um,
2: was was the uh, folk revival at all a reaction to? Uh, electrified music and rock and roll? Uh, you know, I'm thinking in particular of Bob Dylan being booed at the uh, Newport Festival for oh, plugging in.
0: Well, um, that's a lot more complicated question than it would seem to imply. Um, I think that the folk revival originally was a reaction not against electrified music per se, but. About the total blandness of pop music at the time, um, very sanitized um, nothing below the belt mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was you know then you get you get Elvis who re energizes that now. And, and and puts all that stuff back in, you know. And of course, who was Elvis listening to? He was listening to black blues guys, right? <laughs> you know, that was what what got him going. This is what stirs my blood. This is what I'm going to do. I bet it works for anybody. Um. And the rather sanitized sort of early folk stuff gave way to the same thing you know the kingston trio
2: and people like that
0: yeah i mean thank god for the kingston trio if it weren't for the kingston trio none of us would have any work (laughs) but but at the same time they weren't really digging in you know and i'm not sure they understood oh that's not fair what am i saying they probably did understand it but you know um
2: they weren't pushing the boundaries. Yeah,
0: of. more pushing the. That's that's nice. a good one. And then of course the blues came in, and, and then the same thing happened that happened to the blues revivalists is what happened to the the black originators of the form who went to Chicago. They realized the potential of electric instruments. You know, muddy water The fact that the guitar yeah. could be as loud as a trumpet. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah. It just, these things just go in cycles, you know. I've I've lived long enough to, to see it go in and out and up and down. If you could get in a time machine and go see any performance
2: in history, what would you, or a couple that you would have loved to have been there, Not and not necessarily even a particular performance, but a performer in a certain period of time or recording of a session.
0: Oh That's difficult (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that Mostly because The fact is that I got to see most of my heroes I got to talk to them I got to sit down with them Can you share some of those? Oh yeah You know Dick Waterman Used to manage Half of the rediscovered blues artists Um, Fred McDowell Sunhouse, House, Skip James, people like that. And he lived a half a mile from me in Cambridge. And I could walk over to his house and sit there in his living room and watch these guys. Sit there and drink with them and watch them play guitar. Pick up a guitar, play with them. Wow. And these were not just practitioners of blues. These were the guys that invented it.
2: Yeah, Sun House, I uh, mean...
0: Yeah, I
2: mean, go it. Does figure. it get bluesier than Sun House? No.
0: <laughs> it doesn't. I never got to see Lightning Hopkins play live. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess there's one. I would have loved to have been hanging out in Houston watching him. And had I been Towns Van Zandt, I would have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Towns and I used to talk about that all the time. He'd say, yeah, I'd go, just go in and listen to him and... And I would be awestruck, and he would say, yeah, but you got to sit down with Skip James. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: So, let's talk about your career and the battles within yourself that began to appear. You've been sober since 85. That's right. Um, Talk about what the descent before you got sober looked like.
0: Well, it was no news to anybody who's been there, but um, it was as bad as it gets, you know. It was going to kill me. I was just drinking myself to death. You know, I, I had made two records, and then there was um, a third record that I made basically with the same label, although it was a small label and it kept changing hands. Originally, it was part of... RCA. Then it became part of United Artists, and then the third record was actually for United Artists. United Artists was sold, bought by Transamerica Corporation, and the first thing they did was cut half the roster. So that was me. I'd made this record; it never came out. And what did that
2: feel like? What was, that, what? How was that news <coughs> received?
0: Well, I I thought it was just one just one more thing in a, in a a downward trend that i that i was a long ways from blaming myself for but i had a lot to do with it you know <laughs> so did it express itself as bitterness
2: cynicism
0: yes and disappointment and a certain oh, lack of faith in myself you know like what's happening things were going really well you know i was on the up you know the upward path and <clears throat> going to be a big success before you know it. I'll be a household word, and things were conspiring against mm-hmm. me. And the only friend I had was a bottle of Jim Beam, you know. <laughs> and it was—it's um, hard to avoid that kind of thinking, and
2: that's especially just, performing in nightclubs, uh, right? When you've got something to soothe yourself,
0: right? And and everybody else is drinking too, you know, yeah. and. <clears throat> it's a familiar refrain from anybody with substance problems you know you just you know the last thing that you want to blame is the thing that you think of as your last friend yeah the only one you got but um so, you know, it just went on, and finally I, there was a, like a 10, 11-year period where I, I basically didn't, d- didn't do a lot except drink, and I was working construction, you know. I'm pretty handy with tools. And, and Had I can, you stopped performing? Uh, I didn't have any representation. I would perform if somebody called me up and said, Can you come do this gig? You know, I would go do it, but it wasn't organized. I didn't have any
2: in in your mind had you gotten out of the business um in yeah. terms of mm-hmm. supporting yourself
0: yeah i i was uh yeah i was building houses <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and to the point where <clears throat> it was a, it was pretty um i i caught myself at one point and realized that i was thinking of myself as a non-musician um when i got sober I guess I'd been sober for about a year and a half. And um, I was at a meeting of a support group. And this woman that I'd gotten fairly friendly with, and I was talking to her a lot, you know, over a period of about six months. And uh, I went to a meeting and she saw me and she said, Chris, you know, I wanted to ask you. She says, I've known you for six months. I have no idea what you do. What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a carpenter and then I stopped because <laughs> I, I was about to say I was a carpenter and I said uh, actually I'm a musician excuse me I've got to make a phone call <laughs> and I went and I called my boss and I quit What? I quit my job but as a, you know, and I said you know I've got to get back into music and, uh, but that, that shows you that I'd gotten to the point where I didn't think of myself as a musician anymore but I was also cleared up enough to realize, that, you know, that, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> this is pretty drastic, i got to do something.
2: And was it difficult getting back into it?
0: To a degree, yeah, it was. Um, I'd made a hash of of quite a few gigs, you know, towards the end of it, and a lot of people were writing me off and saying, well, you know, Chris, he was great, you know, but he's, he's in a world of trouble now, and, It's not. They weren't sure they wanted to be associated with somebody who never showed up. You know, (laughs) or what he did was in no condition to play. Mm. But you know, uh, these things have a a way of. It's sort of a serendipitous thing, you know. When you get healthy again, people start showing up. You know, they want to talk to you. People that you didn't know before. You know and they say yeah you know uh, you know i'd like to can we can we work together on this you know and and you think to yourself where were you when i really needed you well you weren't accessible yeah then and now you are and they can see it you know and once you get healthy you realize that you can see it too you realize when somebody's is uh, an accessible person and when they're not mm-hmm. So it took about a year or two of really hard work, and then people started saying, well, he's back. And or, then other people would say, who had never heard you, would say, well, what do you mean? He's great, you know.
2: <laughs> Was there a moment when you felt like, I'm I'm
0: back in? Oh, there were several. There were several of those. Um, there, I remember... Um, Playing at, at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. After I had finally, finally gotten a record label, to say, "Yeah, we'd like to to make a record. We're not really sure how much we want to put into it." You know, I tell you what, you know, we'll uh, you make the record and we'll lease it from you. You know, and even that they thought was kind of a heavy commitment. And then they came to see me perform at this folk festival. And Philadelphia was always a a stronghold of mine and I went to uh, it was one of the smaller stages not the main stage but a rather large uh, ancillary stage and I came on stage and there must have been 1500 people sitting out there waiting and they all cheered and I played a killer set and they were all on they were on their feet, and so many of them were going, "Welcome back, you know, we're so glad to see you and Then I turned around, and the two record company executives that were there to see it had their jaws on the floor, they said, "Oh, okay, this my work <laughs> you know that's wow i mean it, and the difference is that in my former life my attitude would have been that'll show you and now my attitude was just that's just grateful yeah I was just so happy that something was working so. what
2: for for the person who's never experienced that personally how can you describe one becoming the other what happens What happened within you for there to be that attitude change? Obviously, you weren't drunk anymore, which was a nice start, but um, as many people know, you can stop drinking, but that isn't necessarily going to change your attitude if that's all that happens.
0: I think that that is different for almost every person who experiences it. They would all choose to explain it in a different way but for me I've always thought that it was the dawning of a sense of humility as opposed to pride and I had always defended my what I perceived as my person with a sense of pride you know I had pride in what I was doing and um the problem with pride is that it requires constant defense you can never let your guard down you know somebody's going to be in there poking holes at you mm-hmm. popping your balloon every little red hot second and it takes an enormous amount of energy and attention and focus to protect to protect it so that you can continue to feel that whereas an attitude of humility however to whatever degree you can achieve it, is an impregnable fortress. Nobody wants to run you over. (laughs) And it's, you know, it it is a position of strength. Humility as a position of strength was a foreign concept to me, but when I first began to understand it was when I first realized that all the battles were within myself. I wasn't really fighting anybody else. I was just fighting my own perception of how the world worked. So what got you
2: to that place of humility other than taking the bottle
0: away? Well, you know, the disease itself, uh, the the addiction itself will beat you down pretty good, you know, make you realize you know. But, you know, it was, you know, hanging out with people who had done it you know just listening i mean innumerable phrases tips here's what you do you know nothing and there's nothing dramatic about it it doesn't happen overnight it takes years um unlearning old habits uh, as you put it you know your model of how the world works no longer works mm-hmm you got to build a new one
2: was human connection a big element for you
0: oh yes absolutely um well there were, you know in a sense there were no human connections before not real ones um because it was all about you it was or- all about me and it was all about you know getting involved in a in a in a real discussion about emotions and about feelings with somebody I would think to myself, I can't say that, you know, because then they'll say this, and then I'll say this, and they'll say this, and you sort of, in your mind, you think you know where the whole thing is gonna go. So you don't say anything. Then one day, after you start to clear up a little bit, you you say, okay, I'll give it a shot, and you try talking, and lo and behold, what you get back is not what you expected. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it was. It's not what you expected. Right. (laughs) You know, and then all of a sudden you realize, you know, I can learn something here. Yeah. I don't know it all. I'm not in control. Which, which sounds like it would
2: naturally lead to humility.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's that you know, okay. You know, I don't know everything. I don't know everything. I have some ideas. Let's see if they work. Yeah. Let's bounce them off somebody.
2: Did you find that exciting then? Because the world, there were more things to discover.
0: It wasn't exciting in and of itself, it, It's, but it worked. Things were getting better. Mm-hmm. You know, things were getting better. And, and it, I would get excited about progress in my career. I didn't really get excited about my own changing perceptions. Mm-hmm. It's just that I felt better, you know. I was, I felt like either somebody new or somebody that I used to be a long time ago and I hadn't seen for quite a while. Mm-hmm.
2: Is there a moment that you can recall where you experienced something that was really difficult and you were able to employ tools that you had learned? and recovery,
0: I can. The uh, again, this is a this is a festival <laughs> situation. Mm-hmm. But I was playing the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and I'd been promised uh, a couple of slots there. And one of them was a main stage appearance, which made me really happy because it was it's a good, very well run festival. It's very good, and the audiences are wonderful. So. It turned out that, and this is another example of sort of internecine warfare in the music business and folk music in particular, but there were a bunch of sort of blues-based, I mean, I don't really think of myself as a blues artist, but more of a blues-based artist, mm-hmm. and there were any number of us at this festival at the time who, who could be sort of grouped into that same thing, and what they'd done was they said, well, these guys are all blues Guys, you know, we'll just put them all on stage at once and have them jam. Oh, my God. You know, and and only two of us were solo artists playing by ourselves. The rest of them had bands and all this stuff, and we're all up on stage, and it's kind of a round-robin thing. One song goes to the other, and people join in if they felt like it. And I was so out of my element, and I was pissed off, you know. I was... I said, what the hell these guys think they're doing? Jesus, you know. He's just, he's, it's like saying, okay, we'll take uh, uh, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, and, and Brahms and, and get them up there to jam. They all play classical, right? right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it just, and I was mad and my attitude was all bad. You know, I, This is going to make me look bad. But there you go, you see. I was saying, this is going to make me look bad. It went around the circle once and I played a song and then halfway through the, the circle of performers before it got back to me again I just I had a, just this moment of clarity and I said you know what I'm just being ridiculous this is not about me this is about the music all I have to do is play the best I can and put it out there it's about the music. Just play it, and when it came to me, I was so calm. I couldn't believe it. I played the next song. I enjoyed playing it. You know, it'd be great if, I, if all of a sudden, you know, the audience stood up as a unit and <laughs> said, "Wow, you are the best!" You know, that's not what happened. But what happened inside of me was the realization that it it was about the music, and if all i if I focused on that and put it out there. I would get all the attention I could possibly handle.
2: Isn't isn't that crazy? When we become less interested in what we're getting and become more interested in what we're giving. Yeah. And not from a place of codependence, but from abundance and joy and love. Um, That that our lives have a way of working out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've never forgotten that moment. And I um consciously or unconsciously employ it every night. Just do the best you can. With all the with the best will that you can muster. And forget about yourself. Words of wisdom. Hmm.
2: Is there anything you'd like to uh, share? I want to uh, give a plug for your, your new record, which is uh, called Me Lucky, uh, and it's a, it's a great, great record. I mean, I love all the stuff you do. Um, but is, is there anything you'd like to share? Obviously, your, uh, your website.
0: Um, yeah, you know, you can, you can find out more about me than I know myself if you go to smither.com uh, or you can go to chrissmither.com. Uh, either one works, and you can. There's also a, there's a Facebook page, which I will tell you. I do not deal with directly very often. It's it's handled for me, but it's you know it's uh, <clears throat> it keeps you up to date with where I've been and what I'm doing. And, um, new record is out. The, the Call Me Lucky record was. Uh, the best time I've ever had in a studio. We were in a studio in, uh, called Blue Rock, um, about 30 miles out of Austin, Texas, and uh, just a beautiful place, absolutely gorgeous equipment, and there were five of us there, and we didn't stick our heads out for 10 days, and when we came wow. out, we had a record, <laughs> it was a, and it was a good one, yeah. it was more fun. Uh, the most intense, concentrated, creative endeavor I've ever been involved in, and uh, totally exhilarating. And I think it shows. So it's, it's a great record. Uh, I love
2: what you do, and I'm so uh, happy that you uh, accepted my invitation to to come record, and um, and that I can share your music with uh, with the listeners. So. Um, Thank you so much for coming by. you're very welcome. That was really cool getting to getting to meet him and watch him play from four feet away um, The surveys for this week are actually just going to be released to people on patreon uh, Many thanks to people who are donors on patreon. It really helps keep the podcast going and it's been a while since i did any kind of bonus stuff for them. So the surveys that I would normally read now, I'm going to read and just put up on the Patreon site. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon donor for as little as a dollar a month, go to patreon.com slash mentalpod, uh, because the podcast does need uh, money. I'm going to send you guys, oh, and also uh, one of Chris's songs called uh, By the Numbers. Uh, I'm going to put in those surveys, that little bonus thing with the surveys as well. And we're going to take it out with uh, another song of Chris's that I love called uh, Leave the Light On. So thank you for listening and never
0: forget that you are not alone. This is called Leave the Light On. I always think of it as a very hopeful number. (laughs)
3: if i were young again i'd pay attention to that little known dimension the taste of endless time is just like water and it runs right through our fingers the flavor of it lingers like a rich red wine in those days we were single and we lived them one by one now we hardly see them day not Walk, they run but I got plenty left I've set my sight on Don't wait I leave the light on I'll be home soon I'd never seen my life in such a hurry But if I stop to worry, Oh, I get left behind. It's just a party, but you don't get invitations. And there's just one destination. You better be on time. For years we rhymed in couplets and sang them two by two. Now we're hard to rhyme at all. But here's a few. But if they hurt, there's bullets left to bite on. Don't. And it holds me to a line It's just so hard to leave these cages that we are thinking. By stages we just sink in to a slow decline For years we lived in waltz time And danced it three by three Now it's hard to dance but if you stick with me We got what we need to spend the night on Don't wait up, leave the light on, I'll be home for glory no moral to the story we run for peace of mind but the race we're running now is never ending pace and time are bending and there's no finish line i will live to be a hundred i was born in 44 27 left but i ain't keeping score I've been left for dead before, but I still fight on Don't wait, I'll leave the light on, I'll be home soon Cause I've been left for dead before, but I still fight on Don't wait, I'll leave the light on, I'll be home